Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Raid, and I'm a naturopathic doctor, and I am pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jaquel Patterson. Uh, Dr. Patterson is a fellow naturopathic doctor. She practices in Fairfield, Connecticut, and her practice, uh, as best I can tell from what I've gleaned from following her on social media and checking out her website and whatnot, um, is uh, her practice focuses heavily on different complex chronic illnesses, uh, so perfect guest uh, for for the podcast. Um, she's a member of the International Lyman Associated Diseases Society, also known as ILADS, kind of the preeminent um, uh, association or, or group that um, offers certification training for folks um, looking to treat individuals with um, chronic uh, Lyme disease, you know, pers persistent Borreliosis, co-infections. Um, they've also kind of branched out to cover other areas too, with some of their conferences like mold illness and um, mast cell activation disorder and things like that as well. Um, she's also a member of the Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Conditions, um, so also known as MAPS. Um, so she has a focus on um, autism and pans and pandas in her practice, uh, treats autoimmune disorders, etc. So uh, really excited to pick her brain. Um, I've I've never met uh, Dr. Patterson before, and just again from uh, just seeing what she posts on social media, I think she has a lot to share. So I'm really hoping that listeners will gain a lot from our conversation. So I'll bring her into the conversation in just a couple of minutes, um, just while waiting for her to log on. I'll just quickly invite anyone who hasn't yet signed up for my um, newsletter slash mailing list. Um, if you're interested in doing so, the link for that is in the show notes for this um, episode, or if you're watching this on YouTube, it's in the description of the video below. Um, <clears throat> if you sign up for my mailing list, you do get complimentary access to the first two modules of my Overcoming Chronic Illness course. Um, it's a comprehensive course that I've put together covering uh, topics like I've just um, alluded to there, such as um, chronic infections, um, mold illness, um, heavy metals, mass cell activation disorders, chronic digestive issues, et cetera. It's essentially, for all intents and purposes, kind of like a roadmap or a kind of a navigation course to um, sort of navigate the waters of complex chronic illness, which is very complex. It really lives up to its name. Um, and so it's a course that I designed for folks who are dealing with um, complex chronic illness themselves, or maybe have family members who are dealing with complex chronic illness, uh, friends, whatever it happens to be. Um, and there are uh, just a, a um, in-depth review of all of the major topics that I've talked uh, discussed with my patients um, all the time uh, when they're coming to my office dealing with complex chronic illness. So um, if you're interested in that course, um, please consider signing up for the mailing list to get um, complimentary access to the first two modules. And then also um, you'll be on my mailing list and just hear about um, upcoming podcast episodes and just things that I'm doing in my practice, things I'm excited about, et cetera. So um, I will uh, pause the recording here and I'll be back in just one moment with Dr. Patterson. All right, everyone, I'm back with Dr. Patterson. So Dr. Patterson, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our chat. And um, would you mind just giving the audience a bit of a background on um, who you are and how you got involved working with folks dealing with um, chronic illnesses? Yeah, so I'm really excited today to be here and to talk about some of the work I do. Um, so I, my name is Dr. Jaquel Patterson. I'm a nationally recognized naturopathic physician. I'm also a Forbes contributor, um, Amazon bestseller, also times three. And I also was the uh, past president of our American Association for Naturopathic Physicians. So been practicing awesome. for about 15 years and um, I'm practicing out of Connecticut with Fairfield Family Health, but I do see patients throughout the country about 40%, 40% of my practice is actually telemedicine. So that's the interesting thing with chronic and complex diseases that oftentimes many of the patients I know you see as well as I see have, have been to seven to nine doctors before they come to see us. And they're coming really seeking answers because 
they're having a lot of um, illness, basically um, symptoms that aren't really uh, being either uh, recognized as an illness or not fully worked up or just unsure about what's going on with them, but they know they just don't feel like themselves or not well. And so um, I actually got into it at um, when I was in actually naturopathic school, I had a lot of symptoms of chronic fatigue. I'd fall asleep everywhere. I had physical pain, joint pain, body pain, headaches, insomnia, and also was having a lot of um, anxiety to the point where I was like, oh, it wasn't just anxiety. It didn't feel like anxiety. And this is when I went to go and find out that I had actually Lyme disease and Babesia and also Bartonella. So I had several different tick-borne infections, but um, they had thought at the time it was just anxiety because I was younger. I was 28 and um, I would just be grocery shopping and I'd be drenched or it would be in the evening and I'd have hot flashes. And I'm like, I don't think this is anxiety because I'm getting it at times that don't make sense. Also, I have a family history of autoimmune conditions. My mother has lupus, my aunt had lupus, um, as well as rheumatoid arthritis. And so immediately, one of the things I got worked up for, obviously, was for an autoimmune condition. And so there were some things that didn't really match up in the blood work. And I kind of left with, hey, this is an autoimmune condition. You might just be stressed and, and get your rest <laughs> and take care of yourself. And then it didn't happen until what happened actually was I started, I started doing a lot more self-care practices. I started doing a lot more wellness. I did um, a lot on um, herbs and nutritional changes, food, dietary changes. And when I started seeing patients myself and they started talking about their symptoms, I'm like, wait a second, these are, these sound like a lot of the symptoms I had. And so that's actually what took me to the process of testing because I wasn't diagnosed and that's when all of those um, actually tests showed positive for many of the different disease conditions um, that were coming into my office and seeing as patients. And so um, that kind of started my story. I had um, so other you know family members that had also had Lyme disease, also autoimmune conditions. And so that always just gravitated to me naturally, really since I was a student doing my precepting hours as well. So, and just doing our clinical hours and rotation. So, um, so it, it's, um, more and more people are, are, are more aware of the complexities of these diseases and are seeking care for it because they're not necessarily getting the answers. But what I like is that I have seen in the last like five to seven years of progression for a greater understanding of some of these um, unique illnesses or were considered more unique before that are actually much more common than we think. Um, and is that greater understanding in kind of the patient base at large or in the healthcare community or both? I think it's both. I think there's now um, many different associations, different groups for people to um, connect in with, to be able to increase, like hone their skills and their understanding. I think I look, at least I know with a lot of my peers, I'm a naturopathic doctor, but I have a lot of friends on the other side, MDs, DOs, they're more aware of it. And now what they're starting to do is just refer like, okay, I know this doesn't fit into these boxes, this box of things that I'm typically used to. So now I'm going to refer out to somebody that has a greater expertise. Also, you know, social media has been a great thing, you know, for a lot of patients for looking and searching for answers and then connecting in with different, you know, private and small groups that are able to um, connect them with a provider that focuses on, um, on, on what their health ailments feel like to get kind of worked up fully. So I think it's a mix of both um, consumer demand, seeking and access to information, much greater access than we had you know, even five years ago. Um, and also also doctors with, with the growth of advent of like a lot of these different groups and associations of having places to send people into and refer out to as well. 
Yep. Yeah, it's great that there are more options for us as clinicians. Like it used to be kind of like just ILADs and that was about it. And now there's exactly. you know, many different groups now, which which is mm -hmm. great and encouraging. Um, just kind of a bit of a random question about uh, social media side of things. Cause you know, sometimes patients come in and it's like, oh yeah, I was, you know, on this group for mast cell activation disorder or this group for Lyme or mold. And, and I find sometimes it's a real asset, you know, they're like learning about different therapies. They know kind of the questions to ask, like maybe that's what's inspired them to actually book in to get worked up. And then sometimes like, it seems like it can be a bit of a doom and gloom, like, you know, oh my gosh, like you're never going to get better. Like, you know, you can't get well unless you use X, Y, or Z um, uh, therapy, or sometimes it's just glorifying, like, you know, um, unless you do bee sting, like apotherapy, like, you know, you're never <laughs> going to get better. So uh, mm -hmm. would, would you have any um, advice to folks or just maybe thoughts around like, you know, if you are part of an online community, like, are there um, maybe things to kind of focus more on or, um, you know, kind of avoid pitfalls, like any, any feedback that you have about that from what you've seen with your patients? That's a really good uh, question because that happens a lot. And and oftentimes people come into me because of the fact that they're like, wait, I have these 10 different things and this might be Lyme disease. And they very well are often sometimes right. But then the other challenges on the other side is not every symptom is, is necessarily that disease condition, you know? So sometimes what can happen is everything can feel like it's connected to that disease condition. Sometimes I tell people like you, you might have three things going on. We might have MCAS, you might have, let's say like mold sensitivity, you might also have Lyme disease or Bartonella, you can have three or four things. But my goal, and anybody working with a naturopathic doctor is to find out like, where did this all stem from? Because I've had patients that have had all three things. And mold may have been really the initial trigger of it, because mold, for example, um, you know, it creates more immune dysregulation, can downregulate your system. And that might mean that something that was kind of hanging out earlier, um, that may have been less significant becomes more obvious because of the fact that your immune, your immune system is more, um, depleted, or, you know, you might have somebody that has, let's say Lyme disease, and that's more of the factor than those other pieces. So what I really try to do when I work with the patient, is I say like, where we want to go back in time and find out like, what, what are, what is the biggest factor, um, leading into the symptoms that they're currently having. And I try to, you know, peel, like, you know, peeling off the onion, try to peel off those layers because sometimes you just want, you always say two primary things for uh, patients that they typically want improvement is like fatigue and, um, and pain. Right. And so I often say like, okay, you might have 40 things, but what is your major issue? And typically it's one of those two things. And I say, if I don't get one or two of those things, right. Or you're not feeling better in it, you don't feel like anything got better. So let's first handle that. And then you have the energy. Like, for example, if you, your fatigue is better, you might start losing weight naturally. You might have energy and motivation to do the things because now you have the energy to do so. So the one thing I would say um, to that point is don't completely go seeking and getting everything through Dr. Google. Once there's a lot of things that aren't adding up, this is where you really want to work um, with a doctor who's trained in um, actually doing the full workup to really direct you in, in pieces. Like I always like to do kind of one thing at a time. I might do more than one, but I maybe one or two, but I don't, I try not to do five things. You know, I don't try to do things for metal testing and, and your stool and your, you know, neurotransmitters and the Lyme disease all at once, because the person you can walk away feeling like completely sick, completely discouraged, like you said, completely hopeless. And my goal is really to make an everybody's goal should make people feel hopeful and that there's going to be a path to getting better. So I think this is where you really need to, um, be mindful of being so active in groups to get answers 
and not actually seeking care from somebody that's an expert that's going to be able to like actually partner with you in that journey into into back into good health. Um, <clears throat> thank you for that. And uh, something you touched on earlier and just a topic that's, um, I don't want to say controversial, but there's lots of different opinions around it. Um, it's just around testing. Like, you know, so you said when you were back uh, doing your mm-hmm. uh, clinical training and whatnot, or just around for your own health, um, you know, doing different tests for say Lyme or Babesia or whatnot. So um, say, you know, patient walks in, they've been sick for, you know, 10 plus years. They have a history that suggests there might be some vector borne illness going on. Um, could you speak to what some of your go-to testing methods would be, say, looking for, you know, persistent Borreliosis or Babesia or mm-hmm. Bartonella or, or whatnot? Yeah, sure. So there's different uh, companies out there, different testing. Um, I'll be mindful of not, I guess, endorsing one because I do know mm-hmm. that there's there's always new ones on the market, right? There's also sure. new groups on the market, but what kinds yeah. of testing you want to get? So when you look at- And, you, and yeah. sorry, Nancy, you, you, you can endorse if you want to, because we're not- Oh, I am allowed to. Okay. Not, yeah, of course. Yeah, nobody's getting CE credits for this. So we're used to um, seeing so, me and CE as, yeah, exactly. as, 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 um, as a doctors when we're presenting. So, exactly. so the companies, so I usually, the biggest thing is that you want to make sure, obviously, it's a reputable company that has experience working with Lyme disease. You want to see that they have studies of proven efficacy of their labs, et cetera, and that they're actually regulated and tested in terms of CLIA waived, et cetera. So um, I typically, when we're looking at it, you want to, if, if someone, we suspect, for example, Lyme disease, like you mentioned, you want to look at the first thing is like a Western blot. Now, some people um, can't afford necessarily to do it through some of these specialty labs that are more Lyme literate labs. And so if you are going to do it through like a general lab, the Western blot would definitely be preferred to ELISA because if you look at the testing, especially with Lyme disease, they're showing like 50%, 53 uh, 50% to 60% false negative. And Western blot also has a high false negative rating. However, um, it's still more accurate because you could, you're actually getting it's it's a little it's more um it's more specific and accurate than when you're going to get like the ELISA test. So that's the first thing, depending on like your access and ability to get some of these like specialized tests. The other thing I like is the immunoblot. Immunoblot is um, very much um, done in terms of the same processing as Western blot, but it's more spe- it's a little bit higher level of specificity. So if you can get the Lyme uh, immunoblot panels, those are great. And then there's something called um, direct and indirect testing. So some companies have it. So one company I'll mention is um, Igenix. So Igenix is a company um, we use. I also love medical diagnostic labs. That's one of my favorite companies to use because it's covered uh, with insurance initially. Um, and so that can give some preliminary information. It's going to be they're more focused on tick-borne infections. So um, the quality of their assays are a bit better. And then also another company is Galaxy. So when you look at direct and indirect testing, you have uh, testing that's actually, um, there's actually testing to see if the, to see if you have antibodies to, for example, Lyme disease versus to see if it's like active in the, in the blood, which is direct testing. And so some of these companies have what's called PCR testing, which allows um, people that can get missed from the normal antibody test uh, picked up. The reason that's important, um, if you suspect you have Lyme disease, is that um, a good percentage about, I think it's anywhere between 10 to 20% of people do not produce enough antibodies to show positive in those tests. And this is where that PCR testing is helpful. So lots of times for me personally, I'll try to do those like Western blot, immunoblot, and then I might do more of the, if I suspect it and it's still not showing positive, that's when I'm looking at things like the PCR testing, fish testing, et cetera. Um, Also just to know is that with things like Lyme disease, uh, it is technically like per CDC, it's a clinical diagnosis. 
So you, you, sh- it's not purely based on the lab tests. I have some patients that are completely positive and they tested like their husband because they have it and their husband has no symptoms and his bands may be worse than the wife, but he has no symptoms. He's asymptomatic. So again, this is why the symptoms matching with the labs. Sometimes, um, I always say the labs are really important to do you the saying test, you know, don't guess. However, with the testing and the results comes then the clinical interpretation of how that's factoring into everything else that's going on. So um, I kind of mix up the companies I, I like the most. I would say medical diagnostic labs, Igenix, and then also Galaxy are kind of our three primary ones. But there are many different on the market. Um, those are just companies that we have sa- seen consistent, um, consistent consistency in terms of like reporting and results back into our, our, our clinic. Great. And uh, just for uh, Canadian listeners, um, where uh, Dr. Patterson mentioned that the um, uh, CDC says Lyme is a clinical diagnosis, which uh, Health Canada says the same thing as well, just for the record. Oh, so cool. North American okay. consensus, apparently, okay. that it is a clinical diagnosis above all else. Um, so just just for clarification there. Awesome. Um, also, I, I should mention at this point, as I mentioned in every episode of this podcast, uh, nothing that we're saying should be construed as medical advice. This is for informational purposes only. If you need uh, medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, just on the topic of testing, um, and you mentioned mold as well, would you mind sharing what uh, testing method, if anything, um, you uh, employ for testing like a patient's body to see if there's evidence of mycotoxins or whatnot? Mm-hmm. So one thing I first like to do is if I'm, again, like initially when I see somebody, I'm trying to do as much as I could do through typically like blood, like the serology test that I can do through the general labs. And so when I'm looking at things like uh, mold, or if I'm looking at MCAS, I might do tryptase. Um, you could do what's called 24 hour um, histamine test uh, for things like mast cell. You can also do um, the just the, the blood test. So you can do those through m- most conventional labs. So typically when I look at mold, I will do initially, um, unless I have a hundred percent strong suspicion it's, co- um, it's connected with mold. Initially, I might just do a regular uh, serology test that tests for Aspergillus fumigatus, Aspergillus niger, which is um, IgG and IgE, and then also test for like stachybotrytis, atra, IgG, IgE. So in those tests, when you're testing the blood, all they're showing is that you've been like chronically exposed, or if there's like kind of an allergic reaction to it. So that's helpful for me to then go based on those numbers. So for example, um, when you look at some of the labs uh, here, like Quest, it's supposed to be below two. If I have a patient that's like a hundred, I know there's definitely a problem, which I have um, with mold exposure, chronic mold exposure. And I ask those questions. And then I typically will go and do the mycotoxin test with Great Plains, um, or I'll do it with um, real-time, real, real-time labs. And so what you're going to look at is it's going to break it down. So if you had something like aspergillus, it's going to break it down to like okra toxin, gliotoxin, like the different form toxins that are going to be getting expressed um, from mold that's currently in your system. So when you test, the reason I want to mention that is when you test for blood, it's really just going to show chronic exposure. So you could have had high exposure like 10 years ago, and that can still show. Um, But it does give information. If it's like crazy high, it's likely that it's probably something that's currently happening. And then the urine test, which is through a company like, you know, uh, like real-time labs, you're going to actually see how much um, is currently in your system, which is really important. The other thing that I encourage people to do, which we do sometimes, if a couple of family members have it, we'll say, let's test the whole, let's test the family. And the reason that's helpful is sometimes is to also find out, like, is this something in my house? 
And so that's another thing is we tend to work with um, companies that will help to do mold testing. Like we refer out uh, for mold testing, or if we suspect mold remediation, especially if there's several family members where the numbers are really high, because at the end of the day, I can help to um, support your mold symptoms and help to um, alleviate them. However, if you're constantly in an environment that is exposing you, the more important thing is to actually fix the environment you're in. So um, it's a little bit of a mix of both of them. And I, we try to also like, so as soon as I find out someone's positive, we want to try to find out like where the source of it is so that we could actually prevent it. Unfortunately, for some people, it's at work. For some people, it's in the school system and there might not be much they can do to prevent it. Um, but at least they will have now information to go back and maybe have some changes or remediations in some in some ways. Um, when you are uh, working with folks who have mold illness um, and whether they're currently in a you know moldy environment and it's pending remediation or pending moving or whatnot, or they had a past exposure and you know they're still lighting up like a Christmas tree with their mycotoxin testing or whatnot, um, is treating their sinuses um, with antimicrobials or other agents something that's part of your mold treatment paradigm? And if so, uh, what kind of agents um, do you tend to employ? For sure. And if there's a, and there's always sometimes a cost issue when we do mold remediation. So sometimes we look at like, what are the big things where the, the major areas of exposure, bathrooms, kitchen sinks, like things, basement, like where are the areas that are going to cause the biggest issues, HVAC systems, et cetera. So you, some people have like filters. I, I definitely, definitely support um, like filters and things like that in the house as well, just to help with uh, cleanliness of air. And then we, we will look if it's positive on, um, sometimes we look at binders. Sometimes we do look at things that help move the liver. So some things that help them move the liver, liver, NAC, um, glutathione, these things help for both phase one and phase two of the liver to remove of any toxins, including, you know, plastics, pollution, environment, any kind of environmental exposures. So usually for most people, I make sure like, their liver is moving and their gut is supported before I start pulling anything out because I guess it depends on the group, but my group tends to be like very sensitive. So if I did like binders, which I'll know a lot of my peers and colleagues do and they do it successfully for me, if I do that for my patients, like they feel horrible. So I try to like kind of prep them a little bit. Um, and so some people are doing IVs, IV glutathione, um, vitamin C, um, and then you can, and then I kind of prep them. And then the other thing is I also like, um, glucomannan. So I do use a product called OptiFibrolene, um, Zymogen makes, which has glucomannan and it kind of sticks to everything in the gut too, to help getting things to move. So I'll do that as well. And then after that, I'll look at binders, like, uh, depending on the type. So if it's like, uh, for example, aspergillus, I might do activated charcoal, or I mean, if it's they're high in okra toxin, I might do um, activated charcoal, which has been studied for it. There's uh, fulvic and humic acids. There's uh, zeolate. There's um, just yeah, the, the regular like you know betonite clay. So it kind of depends on what they're coming with, but I'll typically do that for about eight to twelve weeks. There are other treatments people do like EDTA. Oh, that's actually more like metals and stuff like that. But I, we don't do that in our office. But I typically first try to get like the liver, everything moving in the system to get their um, sauna is another thing I really promote like far infrared sauna about twenty minutes. The studies have shown to like twenty minutes an hour, um, not too much because people could also not feel so great when they're doing that. Um, so I typically will do that to help aid exercise movement, et cetera, to help aid in removing of it. And then what we'll do is retest uh, typically after about three months later after being put on a protocol. 
Um, and and do you at any point um, employ any kind of like nasal sprays, like sinus sprays or anything? Or um, uh, actually, yeah, we we have done yeah we have done that with um oregano, oh, small amounts of like oregano, um, gold, some small amounts of like berberine, other things like that. I don't. I should probably do that more, but we actually don't because that is actually a good point because that's where it um be, you know first gets inhaled through. So that would be a good idea. I don't know which. Do you have specific ones that you like to do? that you use for some of your clients? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, as you said uh, very well, like it's so important mm -hmm. to make sure we're priming all those, you know, detox pathways mm -hmm. before phasing in the binders. And yeah, like I, I've had many, many very sensitive patients as well. So yeah, when it's like, oh yeah, just go on all this stuff right out of the gate. It's like, who are you people? Like don't have many patients. <laughs> I haven't like had that, that luck. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So I dream about those patients. But um, so uh, once we have all that in place, like I, I kind of frame it to my patients, like, okay, now we're going to start very gently poking the hornet's nest because if we start killing off uh, mold that's colonized the sinuses, especially if there are biofilms afoot and they're just really entrenched, then um, you know they're going to start fighting back the only way they know how, which is to release even more mycotoxins. So if the liver and the bowels, the other remunctories aren't ready for it, then it's it's not going to go well. But uh, yeah, my, my go-to um, uh, nasal sprays, like I, I really like a diluted frankincense essential oil nasal spray. Oh, yeah, that makes um, I also use, um, silver hydrosol spray. Um, if we want to start going after biofilms a bit too, mm -hmm. also, it's just not caustic the way that, um, essential oils can be. Um, mm -hmm. there's this, uh, combination that one of my colleagues, um, came up with and it's a combination of like xylitol, iodine, uh, grapefruit seed extract, um, and, uh, something else that I'm forgetting. Oh, and in EDTA actually. Um, so there's a few different combos and if you'd like, I can email you. Oh my... yeah. I definitely want to know that one. Cause we, we definitely do the xylitol and the, uh, the grapefruit seed extract, which are great because I use grapefruit seed extract a lot for uh, in terms of if patient for gut health issues, if they have overgrowth of staph or strep and things like that. So I can imagine that that would be super beneficial as well. So yeah, it can and be biofilm, you reminded me, that's mm -hmm. another thing is we look at things like uh, biofilm also for Lyme disease, like natokinase, limbokinase, things like that. And so what biofilm is that uh, for people listening in like that mucosal layer covers, it basically allows these viruses um, or any kind of toxins that hide from the host. And so you want something that helps to um, get rid of this biofilm. And so things like um, lumbrokinase, nanokinase, there's many different uh, binders, even stevia is not binder, I'm sorry, biofilm are helpful to um, rid of biofilm itself too. And usually those are the things I have people on longer because, um, because of the fact that people are having these persistent chronic infections I find they need to be on things for biofilm longer. Like even if I took them off of the other herbal protocols, they might need to be on something for uh, biofilm longer so I can prevent kind of like it coming back because of the fact that, especially for somebody that's had Lyme disease or a chronic infection for like 10 or 20 years, I want to make sure that kind of stays away. And so typically I want people to be stable for a certain amount of months before I start pulling those things out. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think um, one thing that we can I'm sure both agree on is like, um, say what you will about Borrelia I can say lots of bad things about it, but it is mighty good at hunkering down, you know, it goes into those round body forms and it's like, I'll just hang out until the moment is right. And you leave a little bit of biofilm behind, like it's just you know, happy is to curl up in there exactly. and just hang it's out. A party. Until... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, one uh, other question that just springs to mind, actually, I was, I was consulting on a certain case today. And just one thing a patient mentioned to me, it was kind of like, oh, this is just timely that I'm interviewing uh, someone like yourself today. Um, she was, we were talking about her, her daughter and uh, her daughter's been struggling for, for years with, with her health and, you know, she's making headway, but it's been a slow, like arduous process, but making headway, seeing lots of doctors, like the same, same old, same old story. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, she um, kind of made this offhanded comment about like, oh, like, you know, just, you know, I, my daughter, paraphrasing here, but kind of like my daughter's going to have, like, I know she's going to have Lyme in her body for the rest of her life. Mm. Um, and um, again, this might be something that, um, you know, folks might kind of hear through the grapevine, maybe hear like in different, you know, patient groups or whatnot. But if somebody said to you like, oh, um, you know, I, I've been sick for years, like, sure, maybe you can help to manage my symptoms, maybe I can feel a lot better. But like, I'm always going to have this Lyme in my body, like these Borrelia um, spirochetes in my body, like, um, what would you what would you say to that? Um, that like and I do get that question a lot. And then okay. my piece is that um, you you could have it, you could still test positive with your antibodies, and your body just learned commensal, like it learned to live with it and not have a reaction or response to it. Because I mm -hmm. have had, like I said, patients that have their numbers are higher than their significant other. And they're literally, they have no symptom. They only tested because of that. So, so my question then is like, why, why is it that one person could have, like I said, I've said, I've seen some, the, the partner have like 12 bands <laughs> and that literally 12 bands and then nothing, no symptom. And then the wife has like five and is completely um, not well. And so what I think is like, what is going on constitutionally in their system that because we get exposed to things every day, right? So we constantly are getting bombarded with bacteria, viruses, our microbiome is billions, you know, in our stomach more than digestion, you know, in our um, gut microbiome than any other piece in terms of our cells and stuff in the body. And so why is it that one person will be so reactive and then another person has no symptom? And so what I say is it's like, what is that person's constitution? But there could be a lot of reasons that can weaken that. So stress is one, as we know, especially for women, I say hormones, hormones is a huge one. Um, if they're like how their gut microbiome is food sensitivities, food allergies, if that's strong to be able to help with the immune response and just like general overall immune function. And so I will often say like, once I get a person better, um, and I've seen it. I, and the one thing is I hear when people say, Oh, it's been 10 or 20 years I've had it. So I'm never going to get better. But I don't think that's true. Cause I've seen people that have gotten treated for 10 or 20 years and they've become asymptomatic for a long time. And I've also seen people the other way that it was recent and they've, they've struggled with um, illness. So, so again, why is that versus the other? And so what I'll say is oftentimes when I get people stable and well, um, I kind of warn them of these things, like what are going to be your triggers? A extreme stressful event. I've had that or a patient didn't see them, didn't have, or have patients, haven't seen them for two years. And then all of a sudden, they're like, everything started all over again. And I'm like, what happened? And they're like, oh, my, my father died. And I'm like, okay. And some of the patients I'm like, okay, so I'm not going to even really get, what have you done for it? Have you went for that? I've had actually one really great case that, um, went for, you know, went to go get there, things like that. And immediately like within that week back to the way she was before. So I didn't need to, as a doctor, prescribe anything. I didn't give her anything. She just really needed support through that process. And so that just is a great example of how like stress can really downregulate your immune system. So what I say is like, these things are kind of lingering around, like you have these antibodies, but what can actually activate it? And everybody's different. I've seen that happen with, when people got, um, you know, COVID like that piece get reactivated where they had 
Lyme disease from before, hadn't seen them for a year and a half, got COVID. And it was like, they, like they got Lyme disease all over again. And I was like, I don't think you got Lyme disease over again. I think it was there. And the inflammation was what kind of started, stirred up the pot. And we just need to treat you the same way. And, you know, it'd be over and done within like one or two months. So, um, also for women, since I did write a book called women in Lyme. And the reason I did that was hormones plays a huge factor for women on, um, chronic, disease conditions like autoimmune conditions in particular, and things like Lyme disease. And so especially if a woman is perimenopausal or menopausal, we're all see, um, we look at testosterone, testosterone is an anti-inflammatory that's not protect, you know, that goes down as you get older progesterone, when women get older in that age, it drops and progesterone helps to balance out TH1 and TH2 in the immune response. So all of those things that are like protective for us will actually go down as we age. And it's going to make us more susceptible to being more influenced by having this tick-borne infection or be more influenced um, with having an autoimmune condition. So then what I say is like, how do we work to make sure your hormones are balanced? How do we work to make sure your stress stays stable? How do we work so that your immune system is stuck? Like, what is that trigger for you? Because that typically will keep you in a state state of homeostasis of like, of keeping being well. Um, but you can, you can definitely have the antibodies forever, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I still sometimes have antibodies when I check and I, I, I'm not symptomatic. Um, but it's really like how your body's actually responding, responding to that. Uh, that's usually my answer. That's, I gave a long winded answer, but it's always a hard answer because people really fear, fear that of like, am I going to struggle with this forever? No, you don't have to struggle with it forever. Even if you've had it since you maybe thought you were a kid. Um, but we need to figure out what are those like mitigating? What are those factors that, are, that potentially, um, potentially make it worse? And what do we do to resolve those? Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's a convoluted topic, and and uh, the kind of I, I gave my answer to the to the patient's mom um, earlier today, and you know she gave me some really you know uh, nice feedback saying like oh like that makes me feel so much better. Like it was just it was something that was like really eating at her, and it's like oh like you know it it, it kind of helped to set her mind at ease. So I think yeah, the way we answer that question is is really important. Um, also, and just oh, and, and also the one that, sorry sorry one of the things is I'm glad you said that because. That's also one of my personal challenges is I have a lot of people and I love what you said is that they left feeling positive, but I have a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, docs that do focus in the same areas that we focus on, you know, Lyme disease, tick-borne infections, MCAS, autoimmune conditions. And somehow, sometimes the wording of how providers say it's a really, to me, feels very hopeless of like, you're going to struggle with this forever. You're going to be on these things for the rest of your life. You're, it's never going to go away. And I just never that we just have to be careful of that because your, your, your mind can, your body can, you know, your mind can take, say messages to your body that are negative that can also cause not good health. So, um, I just am mindful of that in terms of, um, that folks are working with people too, where they actually leave hopeful. And that's one of the biggest things I say culturally, when they come to our office, they always say they're like, Oh, I feel, I feel like there's hope or I feel like, I feel like something could happen. Like you, that's part of um, wellness too. That's part of healing is actually feeling hopeful. Um, So you never want to, I think, continue working where you feel kind of just, you feel discouraged every time you leave an office visit with whatever doctor you're seeing. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, I I get similar feedback from my patients and it feels good. You know, it's like, okay, inspiring Mm -hmm. hope. And, and I mean, I'm, 
just saying from my own experience, but just for folks listening, it's like, oh, if you're like, oh yeah, when I talk to my healthcare provider, like there seems to be this, like, you know, it's a bit of a doom and gloom thing. It's just like, I'm just mm-hmm. trying to level with your patient, but like, this is it's not going to be an easy road and, you know, you might only get so much better. But what, when I've heard that feedback from other patients saying like, oh, I was talking to Dr. So-and-so and heard this, like when I've had some insight into what that other clinician's practice is like, it's kind of like stereotypically, it's usually with docs where they're a bit more, um, I don't mean this in a condescending way, but a little bit more myopic where it's like, yeah, like all mm-hmm, I treat is like mm-hmm. Lyme and co-infections. It's like, well, if you don't treat mold and if you don't know about MCAS and you don't know about mitochondrial mm-hmm. dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera, like, yeah, a lot of your patients are not going to get all the way better. Um, exactly. So I think it might have to do with like just um, practitioner limitations of their knowledge. Not that, you know, we, we certainly don't know everything. I always think like, oh, 50 years ago, like state-of-the-art medicine compared to now. It's like, oh my gosh, like the stone age 50 years ago, 50 years from Absolutely. now, we're going to be so much further ahead, but you know, we, we do the best we can, but and, I think that's and keeping open and keeping your mind open. Cause I think as a doctor, you can also become like myopic, like you said, of like, yeah. this is Lyme disease and co-infections. And I've had it where patients, like no one ever tested them for like, check their thyroid or check like auto, I've had patients, many that I've gotten diagnosed with autoimmune conditions. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you were getting treated for Lyme, which was important, like for 20 years. And your ANA is like one over 1200 something, you know, or, and your rheumatoid factors through the roof. Like, how did this, how did this happen? And it's because people become so specialized. They're not looking at like, what are all the, as someone, I always, my thing is I always tell patients if they're not feeling better with treatment after three to six months, that there's no movement at all then that means it's probably something else that's not being addressed that it shouldn't be two years before you actually feel an improvement that that's not, that doesn't make sense. So. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm just uh, noticing that our time's starting to wind down and yeah. I would uh, really kick myself if I didn't pick your brain about <laughs> low dose immunotherapy, um, Dr. Patterson, because as we touched on before uh, we started recording, you're you're one of the uh, rare docs out there, um, you know, mm-hmm. myself included, that actually use low dose immunotherapy. Um, there should be more because it's such I an agree. awesome therapy. Uh, you mentioned you've been using it for several years now. So uh, would you mind? And um, maybe just in the interest of time, we'll just, you know, if, if folks aren't familiar with the low dose immunotherapy, maybe, you know, uh, mm-hmm check out our social media posts or whatever it is about that. Uh, we don't need to get, get into a background on it per se, but would you mind just speaking to um, your clinical experience with it? Yeah. What are some things you like about it? What have you seen? And maybe just share some pearls around it, if you don't mind, please. Yes, it's been really a game changer for a lot of my patients, especially the ones that I see, and it'd be, in- it'd be interesting to know for you, but the ones that I've seen that have have been to more than the seven to nine doctors or have done everything. Mm. Um, those are the ones that I've seen it honestly push the most. And I think the reason is LDI really helps to balance out what they call the TH1 and TH2 response. But the people I find it works the best are the people that have the most immune dysregulation where they're just like their immune system is, is not good. And so that's why they're not responding to those other treatments. So what I love about it is that really what you're getting to, it's a dead irradiated virus. It's specific. You can have like EBV, which is mono. You can have mycoplasma, you can have Lyme, Bartonella. And, um, sometimes you, you can do, um, one or two, but the interesting thing is for me, if you look at autoimmune conditions, most people with autoimmune conditions in terms of the studies have shown they have at least two, one to two chronic and persistent viral infections. So I especially love it for Lyme disease, but I also love it for autoimmune conditions. Cause sometimes it's like, well, what was the, was this virus, the precipitating factor for this autoimmune condition? So there's tons of studies on like Lyme disease and MS or, um, I've seen that with rheumatoid arthritis and, and Lyme disease as well. And so and EBV and Hashimoto's. And so if I have someone, for example, with Hashimoto's and they tell me, oh yeah, I got, you know, 
mono when I was 18. And then I got diagnosed with um, Hashimoto's like two years later, EBV was, may have been the precipitating factor. And so it's awesome to be able to have the LDI and to do EBV and see those improvement in symptoms. And then sometimes I've had people with Lyme disease that I've been treating and they said, oh yeah, my history I've had EBV and I do, and we do LDI with Lyme disease. They make a little progress, but then I'm like, I have a feeling we need to do EBV and, and I do EBV and it's like, everything's better. They're like, my sleep is better. Even for pain, I've even had it improve pain, which obviously EBV and mono isn't, isn't known to do. However, again, it's because that was like the precipitating factor. Um, we also at our office see a lot of kids with pans and pandas. And so um, LDI also has it for strep. Um, and so we all often use it for that or mycoplasma, which is another common infection or Lyme disease uh, related with pans and pandas. So it's been a great one. And for all of you to consider, it, there's only like a, like a couple hundred practitioners still in the country that are trained in it. Um, there's definitely an art in knowing what number to do it. Cause you know, there's a variety of numbers you can pick from. Um, I think I also had experience in homeopathy. So I feel like for some reason I know what number to begin, but it, honestly, it's a, it's literally an art and there's a skill to just knowing what that is. It's, it's to be honest, an intuitive thing from just experience. Uh, but it's definitely something that should be considered um, if you feel like, especially if you feel like you haven't made any progress with other approaches that you've done, um, integrative or, or just through conventional medicine. Yeah, it can, as you said, it can be such a game changer. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned about uh, pans and pandas because mm -hmm. it's been one of the most powerful therapies. Like, you know, I feel like there's, you know, in terms of biggest game changers, like, you know, IVIG can be mm -hmm. really helpful, but like, man, sometimes that strep LDI is like just as impactful, if not more impactful mm -hmm. and like for a fraction of the price and no, exactly. Therapy, it's like, yeah, it can just really be yeah. so amazing. And every six to eight weeks, it's so straightforward and simple. I mean, you it's, can't get a better, treat, better treatment than that. So that is true. And I'm just wondering, uh, just where you have a focus on women's health in your practice as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering if, I guess maybe a two-part question. Like one is um, what uh, have you found benefit of LDI in that patient population around just, you know, sort of, um, you know, say dysmenorrhea, menorrhagia, um, PMS symptoms, things like that. And then the other question would be, um, I'm, I'm sure you've had um, patients in your practice who are suffering from, you know, um, chronic infections and things like that, where mm -hmm. they're like, oh man, like around this or that time of my cycle, like my symptoms are so much worse, like my pain so much worse, my fatigue so much worse, all my inflammation so much worse. Um, in that kind of subset of your practice, have you found LDI to be helpful in uh, any of those cases? Oh, completely. And I do know, I usually do it mostly for infections, but I do know he has um, LDI for like parasites and uh, chemicals and other mixes, I think, and hormones. We haven't actually used it that way, but I do well, often see like once the um, if I, let's say I do Lyme disease, once I get those in order, I'll often see like the other things will kind of fall into, into line. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of inflammation, I definitely have seen, um, a change. I mean, that's one of the things for, especially for Lyme disease, my patients that might have knee pain, hip pain, they'll come in exactly at that mark. And we might need to do a booster dose, which means like a dose in the middle, because they'll often say they're like, Oh, I'm feeling good, but I know I need my LDI dosage because my knee pain is starting to come back or my hand pain is starting to go back. So typically the symptoms I see improve are more of the physical, like the physical pain and also energy, like the fatigue they'll notice right away of like, oh, wow, I, I only need, especially my patients with EBV. I have some of them needing like my best case. I just saw her today was sleeping. It was literally 16 hours a day for a year. 
a year and a half and actually stopped being in, she was a college student had to stop being out of college. So, um, we did, we did a few things after a couple of months. I'm like, these things aren't shifting. Let's just, let's go for it. Cause I, at first I was worried sometimes with LD, I can get a shakeup. So I was like, Oh, I don't want her to be sleeping 18 hours if there's like a Herxheimer reaction. But at that point, she's like, I have nothing to lose. Just do it because she basically wasn't in school. She was sleeping most of the day. We did it. And it was like immediate. She's like, Oh my gosh, I got through a day without needing a nap. And so wow. she went down and improved every month. It was like an hour less, like 15 hours, 14. And so I, I just saw her today and she's down to nine hours of sleep and is working a job. She couldn't work. She's working 25 hours a week. She's back in school full-time plus working 25 hours a week. Whereas this was a kid two years ago that had to actually drop out of school because, because of that. And that was literally only from LDI. So, yeah. 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 It, it's amazing how much it can impact some cases. Like, as I think you mm -hmm. were alluding to, it's not a silver bullet for every case, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but the cases that need it, like by golly, it's just, it's the best exactly. thing ever. It's, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, I, I know we just have a couple of minutes left here before we should uh, wind things up because I know uh, you, we, you need to get uh, get going and I need to get to bed as well as it's pretty <laughs> exactly. late here. Um, but uh, I was just wondering, uh, just kind of rapid fire question, like, um, uh, are there, would you mind sharing like maybe one or two things that you're just kind of currently excited about, like maybe newer things in your practice, things you've learned about recently, um, just anything that you're just kind of springs to mind is like, oh, I'm excited about this, this or that right now um, that's kind of newer to your on your radar. I think some of the new studies on the gut microbiome, like acromensia, which you probably have heard of, because um, there's a, been a lot of studies of these different gut microbiomes I've been studying related to, sh like, for example, with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, things like acromensia showing like 20 years prior to diagnosis. So I've been looking a lot more of being more specific on like those specific microbiome that change relative to, to specific autoimmune condition. I think there's still not enough out there for Lyme disease yet. I think mm. we're going to know more. Um, so that has been more intriguing to me because it's like, Hey, is this information just like infections? I always tell people, people like me who have a predisposition potentially to have an autoimmune condition. Are these viruses like me getting or infections like Lyme disease or EBV, is this, is this what happened to my mom, you know, 20 years, am I getting these things? And then me being able to regulate and manage that preventing the onset of that. So I think this, that's part of where I'm doing more looking into of like, what are the things that we could pick up now? They may be preventing the onset of disease in the future, 10 or 20 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. Absolutely. For Absolutely. sure. Um, well, just before we uh, wrap things up here, Dr. Patterson, um, would you mind just sharing with folks if they're interested in working with you? Or I know you mentioned you've written three books. You mentioned one of them. Maybe you could <laughs> mention the others uh, where they can find you on social media, um, any online offerings you have, um, anything you mentioned, I'll post in the show notes for the show. So I'll put links for folks who are listening. But would you be able to just uh, share some of those sure. resources? Sure. And then on my books, um, you can go into Amazon. You could just type in Dr. Jaquel Patterson. It'll actually have an Amazon um book account. So you'd be able to see the list of books. Um, and then in terms of my practice, it's fairfieldfamilyhealth.com, um, which is fairfield, F-A-I-R field, uh, familyhealth.com. And then on Instagram, I'm pretty active. My Instagram account um, at naturopathic.physician. So that's probably the account most active on. I have a couple other accounts, but that's the one that I post the most. So that's a great way to connect in, see just, just general health information, um, reels if I can remember to do them consistently. Um, <laughs> it's always a challenge, mm -hmm. but it's a great way to connect and get information. And then obviously through um, that website too, as well. 
Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, and thanks so much for the chat today. I really appreciate you being such a thorough, uh, versatile clinician. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with someone who's, uh, yeah, just obviously really care about getting people well and your yeah, vast knowledge really speaks to that. So thanks so much for your time today. And I really appreciate it. You as well. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And uh, thanks to our listeners. Uh, this concludes another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. Um, please stay tuned for the next one.